here we are. It's possibly the most anticipated episode of the podcast. We're going to talk about William Henry Harrison, who's the president who gave us the longest inaugural address. It was nearly two hours long, and then had the shortest presidency. He was in office for 32 days, and then he died. And the story goes that he died from pneumonia because it was a cold, rainy day when he gave that speech, and he refused to wear a coat. Died a month later. William Henry Harrison's tragedy has become the laughing stock of presidential history. And so I knew exactly who to ask to be the main guest for this week's episode, and that's Alexandra Petri, who is the Washington Post's opinion writer and humor columnist. Um, and I feel like presidential history would have suffered a great loss if Harrison hadn't died. Harrison's death is kind of ironically one of the things that really brings presidential history to life. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think he also serves as a valuable cautionary tale because the trend towards longer and longer inaugural speeches can only be stopped when somebody literally <laughs> dies 32 days into office. Whether or not that's actually correlated to his speech, it's a good thing to point to and say, you know, you don't want to wind up like William Henry Harrison here. Well, in this episode, we're going to debunk that classic story that his long speech is what did him in. And the other thing we're going to investigate is the backstory of his catchy campaign slogan, Tippy Canoe and Tyler Too. I'm Lillian Cunningham at The Washington Post, and this is the ninth episode of Presidential. Shall we sign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow? What your country can do for you. A date which will live in infamy. William Henry Harrison was president from 1841 to 1841. Up until Ronald Reagan, Harrison was the oldest man to ever be elected president. He was 68 years old when he took the oath of office. He was also the first president to ever die on the job, raising a ton of questions that the founding fathers hadn't quite thought through about what's supposed to happen in that scenario. But let's start at the beginning. Harrison was born in Virginia in 1773. His father was a notable politician who signed the Declaration of Independence and served as Virginia's governor. So Harrison grows up in this well-to-do family and then decides to go to medical school, but he eventually drops out and joins the military. He makes his name as a war hero, fighting battles against the Native Americans and the British in the early part of the 1800s just like Andrew Jackson. Based on his military success, Harrison becomes governor of the Indiana Territory and then a congressman from Ohio. But Harrison is not a Democrat like Andrew Jackson. He's part of the other national party that has sprung up called the Whigs. And the Whigs are fans of bigger, more powerful federal government. Harrison runs unsuccessfully for president in 1836, and he loses to Martin Van Buren. But by the time the 1840 election rolls around, the Whigs have gotten very smart at campaigning, and they use all these really clever and modern campaign tactics that sweep Harrison to victory. All right, so in preparation for this episode, Alex Petri has been studying up on William Henry Harrison, which is 
admittedly is really hard to do when there's been so little written about a person who was only president for a month. Well, the sense that I've been getting of William Henry Harrison is pretty much entirely derived from a campaign biography from his failed 1836 presidential uh, run. And I'm frankly amazed that this man is not listed as our greatest president because (laughs) this campaign biography, let me tell you, he's the Washington of the West. He leads troops against really the... I had no idea the Native Americans were the aggressors in the wars that were being fought against them. I also learned this from the biography. (laughs) According to his biography's take. No, exactly. (laughs) My eyes were open. He was not only the greatest president, but he was fighting the greatest threat ever posed. And he he spared a man's life after that man tried to assassinate him. He gave only the most stirring speeches. At one point, they put someone else in charge of the army, and the army threatened to mutiny, and so he came back from being the governor of Indiana. Basically, they kept putting him in charge of whatever sort of the territory was west of the Ohio. He kept doing such a remarkable job, at least according to this biography, (laughs) that they could not bear to see him go. He kept trying to return to his farm like George Washington and the efforts were always thwarted by the cries of the people for more <laughs> William Henry Harrison. So, just an amazing man. And the valor of his troops and was constantly rewarded. And he said, spare women and children. I mean, he really... It's interesting when you read what they were trying to sell people on at the time, which really reads a lot like sort of Plutarch's lives or sort of a life of the Caesar where they keep talking about, well, you know he was great because people held parades for him. Like, big <laughs> signs of respect. <laughs> So one thing I ask in all of the podcast episodes, you know, what it, would it be like to go on a blind date with that president? So I'm just going to turn it on you for this episode and ask if you have um, if you have a better sense now of what it might be like to go on a date with William Henry Harrison. Well, I imagine he would talk the whole time. <laughs> I think I, I would be lucky to get in a, wor- a word edgewise. <laughs> okay, so he's long-winded. What else? In the biography, the, the Washington parallels are pretty strong. And the, the George Washington. The George Washington parallels. Mm-hmm. And so the things that people know about Washington, besides that he was like a military commander, was that he was associated with returning power to people at every possible opportunity and going back to a farm and handing over and resigning his commission. And these are sort of the moments for Washington where they say, oh, he, ha- he was given great power and he used it wisely. And they keep trying to drive in that parallel with Harrison's. They'll say he went back to his farm he's been entrusted with great responsibility and he's never once overstepped his mandate, which I think is an interesting concern that you have in a sort of fledgling republic that you need to be reassured that the guy who's going to take the reins is not going to go rampaging and bring in new reforms and try to overreach. And this is a guy who very much stays within his purview. Barbara Bayer is a historian with the Library of Congress. She's the keeper of the William Henry Harrison documents and one of the very few people who can lay claim to the title of being a William Henry Harrison expert. I see William Henry Harrison as a kind of bridge with the past, that he had one foot in the origins of the United States and one foot in the modern era. He dated back to the American Revolution and then was part of this very modern campaign at the end of his life. This campaign pioneered several techniques that we'd recognize today. Most notably, Harrison's team totally mastered the art of crafting a political narrative. 
If you listened to the Andrew Jackson episode, you'll remember that Jackson had a personal story that resonated with the common voter. Well, Harrison had a common folk life story too, except his wasn't true. What happened in 1840 was that Harrison was running against Van Buren, who's up for his second term as president, and Van Buren's campaign tries to attack Harrison as a tired old man by printing something in a newspaper where they joke, give him hard cider and a pension and he'll happily spend the rest of his days in a log cabin. Well, Harrison's political operatives were really smart, and so they took that jab at Harrison And in a move that we now see all the time on the campaign trail, they spun it to their advantage. They plastered images of log cabins and hard cider all over the campaign materials and used it to play up the impression that Harrison was salt of the earth, just a man who poor, hardworking voters could identify with. These populist images became the main iconography of Harrison's presidential campaign. They used all these kind of popular mechanisms for influencing and and winning enthusiasm from voters, including songbooks that were passed out. We have some of them in our collection. So you see on the cover of this songbook the distinguished Harrison in his war uniform, shaking hands with a yeoman farmer um, in front of the log cabin with the barrel of hard cider there. Coonskin caps were also part of the iconography. But it was this very sort of backwoods, frontier, western appeal, which, again, was framing him as a Washington outsider. Well, the fact of the matter was William Henry Harrison was from a very distinguished political family in Virginia. His father had been a signer of the Declaration of Independence, a member of the Continental Congress, and later the governor of Virginia. They were from a very... A prominent planter family, and he had an aristocratic upbringing. He certainly was not living in a log cabin or drinking hard cider. Whether it was true or not, the narrative they built was exactly what the public wanted to hear and what they wanted to vote for in their president. They packaged him in this backwoods way because it would move ordinary voters that were working class, rural, to come out in support of him. Um, There was a real anti-aristocratic tendency, and they kind of erased that whole part of his character. What his strategists focus on instead is making him seem like an ordinary guy you'd want to have a drink with. And also, in part because of his older age, they dig back into his past, and they resurrect his accomplishments as a war hero. They're working off of the same narrative that carried Andrew Jackson to the presidency, which is the belief that military leaders make great presidential leaders. Both Jackson and Harrison were two of the big heroes in the battles against Native Americans and against the British in the early 1800s. And even though Harrison's big victories happened a couple decades earlier, they're still using it as the basis of his 1840 presidential run. During the War of 1812, Harrison in particular, um, and as the governor of Indiana Territory, focused on the Shawnee, and um, he, the the campaign slogan when he ran for president is Tippy Canoe and Tyler too. Tippy Canoe is a reference to a battle that he instigated against the Shawnee. And 
course, Tyler is a reference to John Tyler, his vice president. One of those things that, you know, maybe people learned in school about William Henry Harrison was just the campaign slogan, Tippy Canoe and Tyler Too, and how that's become like the most famous presidential campaign slogan. Can, oh, that oh, song is just so good, man. It is really good. What was successful about that? Is it just the power of alliteration? Like what's, you know, he has the song, he has the slogan, they're passing out booze at hard, um, cider. hard cider, at campaign rallies. What is it that they sort of mastered about political spin in this campaign? Well, I think the alliteration certainly helps. (laughs) It also, the song itself stands head and shoulders above most other presidential campaign songs. I've been listening a lot to the songs from the time, much to the irritation of my neighbors. And you have something like, Monroe, yes, Monroe, he indeed is the man, which is great and catchy in its own way but doesn't stack up against Tippy Canoe and Tyler too and with him will beat the little Ben yes Ben is a used up man etc etc <laughs> and I think the sheer musicality of this tune was rewarded as well as the fact that it's tied into a sort of a heroic battle thing obviously we don't have any original recordings of the song But we have something that's possibly even better. The band They Might Be Giants recorded an amazing version using the original lyrics and tune. So much. <laughs> That's a jam. It's been stuck in my head for the past couple of days. And it's way cooler than, than most of the songs from the time, which were just like, let's just dump it onto like a <laughs> popular melody. Like there's ones like just Yankee Doodle Dandy. Sure, let them talk about art cider, 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 and luck habits too. It will only help to speed the ball for Timmy Canoe and Tyler too. I also love that in that song he acknowledges that there's no such thing as bad publicity. <laughs> sort of let him talk about hard cider, and cider, yeah. cider, and log cabins too. Who only help to speed the ball for Tippy Canoe and Tyler too, and he's right. Um, that was another thing actually that I learned was that the phrase to keep the ball rolling came from their campaign. Because they actually made like, like big like ball. paper mache and whatever else balls that they would roll down the street through towns as part of their campaign. That's such a why don't we do that anymore either? I would <laughs> love to follow a rolling paper mache ball around from town to town. I think like the slogan itself is better. The song itself is terrific, and it's a positive song, which I think people like. We're going to beat Little Van, he's a used-up man. I, I, as I'm hearing myself saying this, I'm like, maybe it's not actually a positive <laughs> song. That doesn't sound terribly positive. But you're coming off of something like John Quincy Adams, who was desperately trying to keep people like Jackson out of the White House and had this 
one of the most nightmarishly negative campaign songs what possible. Was it was just like, little know you what is coming if John Quincy not be coming. <laughs> and you got lyrics like, robins coming, jobbins coming, you know, famines coming, mammons coming, or hatins coming, satans coming, literally wow. satans coming <laughs> if John Quincy not be coming was always the <laughs> kicker, kicker in there. So one thing I found really interesting and smart about their campaign is this log cabin hard cider spin that they do can we just deconstruct the brilliance of that the way that even today in campaigns we see political yeah, who would you like to like, have a beer take... with who would you like to have a hard cider with in a mm-hmm. log cabin <laughs> and I, I think even these days in like debates you see people say well you know my grandfather used to lift giant rocks in a factory and he came on a boat that was made only of dreams and <laughs> we can't we you can't plausibly tie yourself back to a log cabin anymore but this is it's the same basic narrative say i came from a hard scrabble place i'm just like you i don't know what is it that makes people though want to elect a president who's like them (laughs) as opposed to you know (laughs) have you seen us (laughs) (laughs) as opposed to like great i would love someone who's a smarter and more talented and more capable well, don't get me wrong, they're definitely selling him as smarter and more talented and more mm. capable and given a gold medal by Congress yeah. and they read excerpts of speeches that have been delivered just full of encomia for this man. But I think, especially after Jackson, you want to see the idea that a common man can ascend to this high office and it's not sort of the prerogative of the elites is a, a cool thing that still does resonate. You want to think, well... You can come from the territories and you can have this sort of up by the bootstraps story, even if it's a narrative, you can have it. The campaign spin works. The 1840 election has one of the highest voter turnouts in history. 80% of those who are legally allowed to vote did. Harrison wins the election in a huge victory, and the Whigs also win both houses of Congress. As soon as he gets into office, though, it's pretty clear that Harrison's backwoods, fun guy narrative is kind of a hoax. Harrison proceeds to deliver the longest, most academic inaugural address in history. It's not the kind of address a man in a log cabin would give at all. It's completely filled with obscure references to ancient republics. It was the remark of a Roman consul in an early period of that celebrated republic that a most striking contrast was observable in the conduct of candidates for offices of power and trust before and after obtaining them, they seldom carrying out in the latter case the pledges and promises made in the former. However, much the world may have improved in many respects in the lapse of upward of two thousand years since the remark was made by the virtuous and indignant Roman, I fear that a strict examination of the annals of some of the modern elective governments would develop similar instances of violated confidence. It was certainly a long-winded and meandering inaugural address, and he was famous for this. This is how he always gave speeches. And that was just one sentence. There were two hours of this. So for a long time, basically everyone has thought that this crazy long speech is what killed Harrison. That because he stood out in the cold without a coat on for almost two hours delivering it, that he caught pneumonia and died. Well, it turns out Dr. Philip Makoviak with the University of Maryland School of Medicine 
decided not too long ago to go back and do a really thorough medical investigation. And apparently the weather uh, was not that cold and not that damp. Um, and so um, the whole scenario really doesn't fit with um, that the association between the inaugural address and the illness uh, because he didn't become sick until three weeks later. And so it would be hard to imagine that there was a cause and effect between that exposure and the illness he came down with three weeks later. Okay, so we have a medical mystery. A deep dive into Harrison's medical records allowed Dr. Makoviak to piece together a vivid account of his sickness. It, it began with nonspecific uh, symptoms. Uh, he was feeling fatigued. Uh, he, was, he was feeling nervous. Um, he felt like it was due to this uh, hard-fought campaign he had and the early pressures of being in office. Um, and then um, he ha- had um, gastrointestinal abdominal problems, and in particular, um, abdominal aching, discomfort, and constipation. And constipation that was so severe and so protracted, uh, we give it a special name. We call it obstipation. His pulmonary symptoms came on later uh, and were not as progressive as his abdominal um, complaints. And and this is uh, the principal reason why I believe that his primary illness was gastrointestinal rather than pulmonary. So if it's not pneumonia, what is it? Trying to figure out uh, what could possibly have been the reason for Harrison's illness led us to investigate uh, the water supply to the White House. And what we found um, were several things. Number one, that uh, Washington City had no sewage system. Sewage just drained from wherever it happened to be deposited to uh, wherever water took it. In the case of the White House, um, there was a night soil repository, night soil being human feces, uh, that was that was collected and carted to this spot, uh, which was six blocks directly above the White House. The theory um, that seems inescapable is that uh, the White House water supply was uh, contaminated by a fecal material that was flowing from that night soil repository. And uh, chances are it would have uh, included uh, fecal material from people who were ill with various diseases, uh, cholera, but unfortunately in the case of Harrison, probably typhoid fever. So one thing I came across uh, was the original physician's report after his Mm -hmm. death um, that said... Topical depletion, blistering, and appropriate internal remedies subdued in a great measure the disease of the lungs and liver. Could you give me a little bit more of a sense of what kind of remedies they're talking about here? What were some of the techniques that they were using at the time to try to cure him? Right. Given a a host of medications, two of the most important were uh, repeated doses of mercury, which we now realize is toxic, um, but also he was given uh, opium in the form of laudanum. 
This is basically the opposite of helpful. The mercury and opium just exacerbate his issues, but at the time, doctors didn't really understand modern medicine, and they definitely didn't know about typhoid fever. So William Henry Harrison dies of the sickness and of the flawed ways they try to treat him. His doctor suggested in the final report that there were innumerable questions about Harrison's illness that he just couldn't figure out, and so he put the official cause of death down in the medical record as pneumonia, because that was one ailment he did recognize. And I think what was going on there is that he he was he himself was under attack by a uh, a very anxious, concerned, confused public who wanted an answer. And and that was the best he could do, and so that's what he gave him. Uh, but he was he was ambivalent about that diagnosis, and so that uh, subsequent um, historians have latched onto that particular diagnosis and, and have perpetuated it ever since. Hmm. And hi- historians in general um, pay uh, very little attention. Um, to the uh, health record of their subjects. Um, they tend to be uh, dealt with as simply a footnote to the life and legacy of these fam- famous people. And so that uh, only when uh, a physician uh, with the kind of interest uh, that I've had for 20 years gets, gets involved in these cases is there a concerted effort to try to wade through the medical information and come up with a diagnosis that fits the information that's available. So it turns out that being in the White House itself was actually what killed William Henry Harrison. And what's even crazier is that Dr. Makoviak found that the contaminated White House water supply was actually the secret killer of a couple more presidents we're about to encounter in upcoming episodes. Next week, we'll look at the first man to take over after a president dies in office. He's the other half of Tippy Canoe and Tyler too, John Tyler. For that episode, I visited Tyler's grandson, who is still alive. Start doing the math on how remarkable that is, and by the time you're done, we'll be back next week with our new episode. The original music for the podcast is by Dave Wessner, and a very special thanks this week to They Might Be Giants for letting me share their awesome version of Tippy Canoe in our episode. Many thanks to, of course, to our guests Barbara Baer, Dr. Philip Makoviak, and Alexandra Petri. So, what about his death? At what point, like, could you start making jokes <laughs> about? It's still too soon. It's still it's too still too soon. <laughs> like William Henry Harrison has a family. He has a grandson. I mean. Uh... You got to think of him as a person. No, I think, I, I assume almost immediately people have to have been like, you have to say this is a little funny. <laughs> I mean, oh, 
motion, motion, motion all the country through. It is the ball of rolling on for Tippy Canoe and Tyler too. And with him will be little Van, Van, Van is a used up man. And with him will be little Van. Sure, let him talk about art cider, 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 and lock cabins too. Will only help to speed the ball for Tippy Canoe and Tyler too. And with him will be little Van. Van is a used up man And with him will be little Van Like the rush of mighty waters Waters, waters, onward it will go And the course will bring me Hi there, Lillian again. If you're enjoying Presidential, check out another podcast I made right afterward called Constitutional. It's a deep dive into the story of our country's founding document. From abolition and civil rights to suffragists and the fight for the 19th Amendment. Women should have the vote because it's unjust, shameful, and cowardly for men to deprive women of that they demand for themselves. It explores the revolutionary figures who advanced our understanding of free speech, religious freedom, the right to bear arms, immigration, Native American rights. For the first time in the 103-year history of the United States, a federal judge had declared that an Indian, from that point forward, would have to be regarded as a person. And it takes you back in time to the original battle of ideas at the Constitutional Convention. There was nothing dry or dusty about it. This is the most radical body of democratic deliberation ever assembled. These struggles, from 1787 all the way up to today, constitute the story of America. You can listen to The Constitutional Podcast at WashingtonPost.com slash constitutional. Or you can find it on whatever your favorite podcast platform is.